0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Cateck. Lately, we've been telling stories about student activism. One thing is clear, student activism hasn't disappeared, but I think it's totally fair to say that the university just isn't the bleeding edge of radical politics. Whatever your strange conservative uncle tells you, our universities are just pretty job-oriented. But if there ever was a time when the campus was different, If there ever was a time when the campus really was the bleeding edge of radical politics, it was probably the mid to late 60s. This is, of course, when the campus was the heart of the counterculture. Yet, for a bunch of reasons, we don't always look back so fondly at these student radicals. There's a kind of stock historical narrative that I see repeated over and over again in many leftist spaces. It goes something like this. The student counterculture was too infected by bourgeois individualism. Their politics was not much more than personal insurrection. So it was inevitable. These student radicals would eventually become Reagan-era yuppies and later Silicon Valley techno-utopians. But is that the right way to look at the counterculture? If we look more closely, Was there something they got right? Something to celebrate? Maybe something even to recover for today? Producer Mark Apollonio looks to answer those questions and others, but not through a sweeping political narrative. This is the story of one place, Rochdale College. Today, it is a nondescript 18-story tower near the University of Toronto. It's used as social housing, but back then, It was the heart of Canada's counterculture.
2: Dennis Lee said that it was an attempt to make sense out of higher education and urban living. Judith Merrill said that the fact that it was permitted to happen was more important than what happened to it. Richard Needham wrote in 1972 that it should be closed down. Because he wrote, it's a slum, a high-rise garbage heap, and much of the garbage is human.
3: Rochdale. What the hell was it? And why did humorist Richard Needham feel compelled to say it was full of human garbage? Over the past weeks, I've been asking people about Rochdale. People who grew up in downtown Toronto, who are older than about 60, typically, they know all about it, may even have their own strange stories. It might well be where they bought their drugs. Everyone else, no clue. I'm in the latter category. I grew up in this city. For over a decade, I've lived less than a 10-minute walk from the very large, unmissable site that was Rochdale. But never heard of it
4: unaffiliated college that would deal in experiential and free education.
5: Allen Ginsberg came up to Toronto and was teaching in quotation marks also at uh, Rochdale College. The bikers made a
3: raid on Roshdale one night uh,
0: because they were very much interested in the speed
3: trade. Today on Darts and Letters, the story of the Hippie Tower the residential, educational, communal, artistic, and psychedelic experiment that was Rochdale College. It only lasted seven years, from 1968 to 1975, but is probably the most radical and most important experiment of the counterculture in Canada. We'll meet a handful of people who lived the Rochdale experience. We'll meet one of its founders, who also happens to be one of its most ardent intellectual critics. And to help tie it all together, we have this guy. My name is Stuart Henderson. Stuart, a historian and filmmaker, has been researching Rochdale for over a decade. We have a ton of ground to cover. Let's begin with the basics. What the hell was Rochdale?
4: Rochdale was A combination of things, which is why I think you get a lot of these kind of multifaceted answers. But in like tragically brief terms, it is an educational experiment whereby some folks who were interested in free schools and the sort of philosophy around free schools in the 1960s came together with a group of folks who were interested in developing overflow housing for the University of Toronto, or near at least the University of Toronto. The plan is a high-rise residence for
3: students that'll be run in a radical way, as it'll be the students who really run things. They'll govern the building, they'll oversee classes and seminars, a utopian experiment in a new kind of university.
4: There are a variety of genuinely, I think, well-thought-through schemes and ideas that were all kind of at work here. But the reason why everybody says they can't answer the question of what it was is that Almost all of the answer I just gave gets kind of thrown out the window virtually the day after the door's open.
3: At the outset, a guy named Howard Edelman is the driving force making Rochdale happen. Howard, in his late 20s, he's already an experienced activist.
2: Well, it started in 1959, the fall, when I and another student organized the combined university campaign against nuclear arms. Then, of course, as the Vietnam issue rose, I became very active in the underground railway of settling deserters. So that was sort of my activities in the 60s,
3: more or less. Howard, he's deeply involved in organizing cooperatives. By the late 60s, he works for the student residence organization, Campus Co-op. In that period, the late 60s, the enormous population bulge of the baby boomers is just starting to hit university age. There was dire need across Canada for new student housing. Of course, it takes money to build residences and Howard and Campus Co-op are not sitting on a ton of it. But Howard realizes he can get a major financial boost by way of a massive tax break if he makes Rochdale not just a residence, but an educational institution as well. And that idea, it's right up Howard's alley. He's already into alternative forms of schooling, so it's a win-win. He hatches a plan to make Rochdale a free university, offering a free, uncredited education program for anyone who wants to enroll. Uh,
6: And I see an educational program in three
3: different areas going on there. In 1969, Howard was on the CBC radio program Concern, here he is describing the pillars of Rochdale's educational philosophy.
6: One area is the social action sort of things, the you know the work with the North American Indians, the work with unions and developing their own housing and helping them to develop their own housing, the work with dropouts, you know high school dropouts and running those schools for them, that kind of work in Rochdale as sort of action theory uh, learning processes. The third is the second area is. Um, the area of the creative arts, you know, you know the the filmmaking, those guys making that feature film, uh, the uh, ceramics studios the uh, third area is the intellectual programs where the people arrange either a resource person initiates or people themselves, students in the building, initiate seminars that they want to have, and uh, that's really and it of course ranges from. Specialized mathematics to, um, you know, problems of race
3: or. Uh... Howard, he calls Rochdale a college, just like the University of Toronto's Trinity College or Victoria College. But that's tongue in cheek. He gets no official buy in from the university. The board put together to oversee Rochdale brings in Dennis Lee, who teaches English at the University of Toronto, to oversee Rochdale's education program.
0: At the very opening of its catalog, Rochdale says this. The kind of responsibility we ask of our members is awesome. Plan your own courses, seek your own evaluations, keep your room clean, and make college policy.
3: This again from the CBC show Concern, from the 1969 episode Organized Anarchy at Rochdale College. We're hearing host Peter Mays.
0: The catalogue then goes on to point out that the principle upon which the college operates is that a man learns best when he first discovers what it is that he wants to learn and how he wants to learn it. Or as one of the participants in this program puts it, Rochdale itself doesn't do anything. It enables its members to do things, the things they want to do which will help them to learn.
4: That is to say a program that did away with the kind of stayed classroom Socratic method environment that um, most of the baby boomers grew up in and did something that was a little bit more funky, that was sort of more student centered in a sense. If you wanted to only study Socrates. Why should you have to study all the others stuff? you? You can just go in and do Socrates seminars all day with, with a hip professor who knows how to make it relatable to you in you know, 1968 Toronto.
3: I'm Mark Apollonio, and you're listening to Darts and Letters. Every episode we cover the politics of academia, science, expertise, and intellectual culture. If you like what you're hearing today, you'll surely love our other episodes, so hit that subscribe button. You can also find us at dartsandletters.ca. All right, back to Rochdale. It's summer 1968, and Rochdale College's doors are about to open. But before they do, I want to take a quick look at the period when all this is going down and some of the people who were a part of it. The late 60s was, of course, an era full of new ways of thinking. This is the tail end of the civil rights movement and the beginning of the new left. The new left, it's broad, diverse, sometimes contradictory. Some of its members reject class struggle, while others are ardent Maoists. It includes feminists, black radicals, gay liberation activists, and anti-nuclear activists. Its critics, we'll hear from one later this episode, say it is fractured and overly focused on individualism and self-expression. In North America... The New Left and what we'd call hippies. There's a lot of overlap between them. Together they make the broad counterculture movement that the era is so famous for. Some of them are explicitly political, some of them not in the least. In Toronto, the geographical heart of the counterculture movement is a neighbourhood called Yorkville. It's just a short walk from Rochdale. These days, Yorkville is all about luxury condos and luxury shopping. But back then, it's Toronto's Haight-Ashbury or East Village. Future musical icons like Joni Mitchell and Neil Young, they play in
4: its coffee houses. Toronto had this tiny little area of the city that was dominated by little cafes, coffee houses, stages where musicians could play. And young people in their droves flocked there in particular all through the summer, but also on weekends, weeknights. If there was, you know, a countercultural center in Canada, it probably was the one. Yorkville really had this kind of legendary status.
3: In straight-laced Toronto, there's predictably moral panic about Yorkville and its drug addicts. The 1967 National Film Board of Canada documentary "Flowers on a One-Way Street" by Robin Spry it captures the vibe.
0: Well, tell me, the most of the people down in Yorkville, do they take dope. Yes. Well, it's not for me to say. You but, work? Hmm? You work Yes, now? I do. Most of you are. Uh, I'm working at, right now. Most color. of you guys start at work now? Well, I tell you, well, I know, but they're acting like a zoo. If the hippies were out of there, there wouldn't need to be as many cars go through that most of us feel because they go through to look at the stores and to see what freaks these hippies are.
3: Soon, the moral panic is medicalized. In 1968, There's a hepatitis outbreak.
4: Basically, there was this, you know, just gargantuan overreaction on the part of folks in the media, but also, I think, in the medical establishment and among scared parents, uh, that it was, in a way, like a diseased district. So what effectively happened was a kind of quarantine in August of 1968, where places were closed, pending investigations. They were trying to test the water, figure out, you know, where is this disease coming from? And... It was a real just kind of monster overreaction. Now, what it had the great effect of doing, though, was establishing Yorkville as a dangerous, potentially fatal place to go. It kind of made this metaphor of the counterculture infecting your children somehow real. It caused a great deal of stress and and discomfort. And then it's September. All of a sudden, everyone's going back to school. Yorkville's kind of not been the place for a whole month, so people have kind of looked around for other things to do in Toronto. They're um, exploring other venues. And when does Rochdale open, but virtually that same week. The hippie kids of Yorkville, once scattered through the streets and
3: coffee houses of the neighbourhood, suddenly they rush into that 18-storey high rise.
4: In streamed hundreds upon hundreds of people who just frankly Saw it as a countercultural mega site, an 18-story high-rise with all these rooms available, filled with you know largely young people, uh, many of them countercultural in their worldviews or in their practices. You know, it, it basically became um, an ongoing party. It's an instant population
3: explosion. Intended to house 750 people, the building soon has double that number or more. Beyond U of T students and Yorkville hipsters are homeless people, U.S. draft dodgers, and a whole host of other young folks from across Canada. 26-year-old Ralph Osborne is one of them. Enticed by the ideals of a free university, he makes his way to Toronto from Regina, Saskatchewan. In
0: the prairies, I was working as a janitor for the university. And uh, when I got to, to Rochdale, they had failed every health inspection since they had opened, and there were thre- the city was threatening to close them down. So uh, uh, I went to a meeting and I said, "Well, I was a janitor. Well, can you clean the place up? Yes, I can., um, uh, you know, And uh, so. So that was my entree into Rochdale. I became the head of maintenance and in charge of cleaning the building
3: up. Ralph, with his new gig, ends up living on the 18th floor in one of the many so-called communes. One practical aspect of these communes is that members rented their apartment as a block, negotiating cheaper block rental rates for the whole floor. They formed their own little communities. Ralph's commune, in contrast to some other floors, was a chill, and relatively sober bunch.
0: People living up there, there was uh, Jack Diamond, who was the registrar for the University of Toronto, and uh, Bryn
3: Warren, who, who was a uh, doctor and uh, psychiatrist. Nikki Morrison, she lives on the 14th floor, just a few floors down from Ralph. Despite what many Torontonians say about these feckless hippies, on Nikki's floor, they're anything but. Nikki and her 30 or more floor mates, they are highly organized. The way we
7: did our money, we separated into education and um, maintenance and and paying the rent. We ended up buying a vehicle. Different people took on the job of running the vehicle and buying the groceries. We did all our shopping, Kensington Market and other markets. Different types of jobs were split-ups. You didn't cook every day. You might cook once every
3: ten days or two weeks. Initiatives, like the ones on Nikki's floor, are coming together all over the building. But still, Rochdale, it has its problems. The most concerning is its high suicide rate. People jumping from the roof. It's hard to gauge just how bad it was. Some sources cite four suicides over the course of Rochdale's seven years. Others cite as many as 11. But either figure, from a population of about 1 to 2,000, would be several times higher than Canada's national average. This becomes a favourite talking point for critics, among them former Canadian Prime Minister John Diefenbaker, who says Rochdale has more suicides than graduates. But the figures might be misleading. Rochdale's defenders point out that the large majority of people who died by suicide lived outside the building, and that Rochdale's roof, like many famous bridges around the world, had become a known site for people to jump off. To the Rochdalians, it's all just sensational reporting by Toronto's conservative mainstream media. The same media that hammered on the Yorkville kids is now fixated on Rochdale.
4: This is a case where the outside world is looking at Rochdale going, what the hell's going on in there? It's like a fortress. It's impenetrable to the eye. You look at it, it's this big, brutalist concrete building. All you know is that it's filled with, you know, hippie freaks or whatever you've been told. And you're imagining, right? So you're imagining a drug orgy and you're imagining who knows what all. And over the course of the seven years, thousands of people, people are pouring in. Inevitably, there's going to be accidents. There is going to be suicide. And there is going to be violence because those are the things that you will encounter everywhere where there's a lot of people. The reality, though, is that when the media are looking at it going, what's going on in there? What's happening inside? It's a mystery. It's this salacious, who knows what's going on in there. If somebody kills himself, that's the headline. Drug-fueled suicide. When are they going to shut down this sore on the face of the city? Those sorts of condemnations from public figures
3: were common. But despite them, Rochdale keeps going. The will to shut it down, not strong enough to actually make it happen. At least, not yet. But it's not just conservatives from outside attacking Rochdale. Some people from within are finding themselves disillusioned, namely Howard Edelman and Dennis Lee, two people who initially were at the very heart of the whole project. In their view, Rochdale's not living up to their radical education ideals, and they sour on it. Dennis Lee and Howard, they leave Rochdale altogether.
6: The reason I ask that is Dennis Lee, whom I understand came from Victoria College. This is part
3: of a TV broadcast from the late 70s from Ontario's public broadcaster, TVO. It's from a current affairs show called The Education of Mike McManus. Host McManus is talking to a young, former Rochdalian.
6: Uh, I had a group who were interested
0: in philosophy, and uh, they used to turn in meat once a week and turn in papers. These are in the early days. But he says somewhere that in the end, it petered out the philosophy
4: group like everything else petered out at Rochdale.
8: No, I, 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 I think that people like Dennis Lee were really disappointed because, as I said, I think they, they had an idea about Rochdale.
3: The former Rochdalian replying to McManus is Heather McFarlane.
8: What happened in Rochdale was a community, which was a, is a totally different idea, really. I liked Rochdale because I come from a small town and I come from, it's a, in the Yukon Territory and it was very similar to what I, the experience I'd had there and that is a small community, the kind of community where people know each other, if only to see each other, we recognized faces. Mm-hmm. People who knew things felt an obligation to teach other people who asked them for help. Like during the year, I, uh, one of the years I was there, a person who knows a lot about computers, was giving little classes every night to so, uh, three or four people who were interested in computers. And you, you felt an obligation if you knew something. Like, I was into librarianship, so I spent one summer fixing the library up, and, uh, and, I would, and people would come to me and ask me about libraries. And I would, te- I would feel an obligation to tell them. And I think that happened in a lot of cases, in, in photography and in, uh, and in the looms and uh, the dancing and uh, the pottery, you felt that you had the right to learn.
3: A huge number of groups and workshops spring up within Rochdale, serving not only residents, but anyone living outside who's interested. There are black power groups and Marxist student radicals. There's a witches collective. There's a film group to which both Lorne Michaels, the guy who created Saturday Night Live and filmmaker David Cronenberg are part. And some of Rochdale's most successful initiatives are still booming today. Theatre Pass Mirai, currently one of Toronto's foremost playhouses, is founded in Rochdale as an experimental theatre. Coach House Press, it predates Rochdale, but when Rochdale opens, Coach House becomes the go to printer for countercultural leaflets, posters, and Roschdale's very own weekly newspaper, The Two's Daily. Nikki Morrison, for a while, she works for the paper, helping coordinate the printing runs with Coach House Press.
7: When it was ready, we would pick it up and then distribute it throughout the building, put one under everybody's bedroom
3: door. That's the way we did it. And Coach House goes on to publish some of Canada's most famous authors, like Margaret Atwood and Michael Ondaatje. It's still going strong today. Another Rochel offshoot is the conceptual art collective general idea
0: the general audience at the Vancouver Art Gallery might not be ready for general ideas vision of mass media manipulation and their view of artists as the lapdogs of wealthy patrons is illustrated by this installation called
3: P is for poodle the trio meets while living in the building but moves out before they start creating as general idea aA Bronson is one of the co-founders
5: we did a lot of Projects that had elements in print, and those mostly I printed at the Coach House Press on the hand press. And uh, we did performances, which several of them took place at Theatre Pass Murai, produ- or as productions of Theatre Pass Murai. So we were still involved in the creative community that was the real Rochdale College to me. The building starts to think of itself as
4: the world. And when I say the building, I mean folks that are really determined to make it work and to live inside of it and to contribute to it in important ways. And once it becomes the world, the focus of your political energy, you're not thinking about how do we overthrow the government or how do we stop the war or whatever, You, you know those become sort of background thoughts to how do we improve the Roschdale experience? Like how do we make this place even more accommodating and excellent? That becomes like a real theme by the early 70s. You see the foundation of a medical clinic within the building because the sense is, we're a community. We need health care. We see the foundation of, you know, a newspaper within the building. That actually happens quite early on, but it really becomes an important internal glue for the community, an attempt to keep everyone connected. A closed circuit radio and TV uh, station operate for some time. There's a sense of the building as an incubator for great ideas. So educational programs start popping back up here and there. Uh, as people say, look, let, let's get together and we're gonna we're gonna get into a room and we're gonna talk for five hours about sexual liberation, and or we'll talk about um, Black Power or we'll talk about any of these kind of burgeoning political movements on the outside and see how we can contribute from within, but also try to change our situation in here so that we are better reflective of like you know progressive politics. I think there's a lot of that kind of, for lack of a better word, it's like self-help, but it's really more like community organizing that's going on within the building. And it's quite a fascinating thing.
3: Among the most critical initiatives Stuart just mentioned is the health clinic. In jam-packed Rochdale, a portion of the population has spotty access to health care for any number of reasons. Homelessness, drug use, mental health issues, or simply being American. Rochdale had plenty of U.S. draft dodgers. Nikki Morrison, we heard from her earlier about the newspaper. She worked as a nurse prior to Rochdale. With her skills, she's hired to work in the clinic.
7: We started by having doctors that came in from some of the hospitals, but we ended up being able to hire a full-time doctor, Dr. David Collins. And uh, we treated everything from venereal warts to broken bones or whatever. We used to give up
3: prescriptions for birth control pills. While we're here talking to Nikki about healthcare and Dr. David Collins, there's another Nikki Morrison story I want you to hear. Nikki, in 1970, She's the first woman to give birth in Rochdale. It happens in her room in her 14th floor commune. Dr. David Collins delivers the baby.
7: Well, I couldn't have asked for anything better, really. I've witnessed a lot of babies being born. And uh, in hospitals, they'll get your legs up in the stirrups and tie you up there, and you're supposed to deliver a baby. I mean, in, where I was, I could get up, walk around. I could take a shower. I could... Plus the commune girls were all there and they were all helping me out, you know, giving me a little honey or ice cubes or whatever. So I was surrounded by my friends while I was giving birth to this baby and it was like a perfect
3: experience. As her baby grows into a toddler and more Rochdale babies are born, Nikki and other parents decide to join forces.
7: Us parents got together and started talking about it and decided wouldn't it be great to have a daycare in the building. I happened to be sitting on the governing council at that time, so I said I'd make a motion to get a space. Went to the next meeting, made the motion, they gave us the space. A large apartment with two bedrooms and a bathroom and a kitchen. We got together as parents and we wrote up a schedule and we were at least three people that would work the unit At least two, and sometimes mostly three, depending on how many kids we had at any given time. And we fed them, we took them to the park, we played
3: games, we got lots of things donated to us. Of course, affordable childcare. It's far from the only way that Rochdale is ahead of the progressive curve. In an era when homophobia is rampant in Canada,
5: Rochdale is reportedly a pretty queer-friendly place. I mean, it was more queer than gay in that everybody's personal identities were completely fluid and could change from day to day, let alone uh, leaving behind the norm of, you know, the societal norm.
3: You have to remember, when Rochdale kicks off, homosexuality is still illegal in this country. It's illegal until 1969, and bathhouse raids continue in Toronto into the 80s. But according to A.A. A. Bronson, Rochdale was a spot where queer people might
5: feel a little more free. There certainly were, was a variety of sexualities unfolding within Rochdale in different ways, you know. And it was very no, a very non-judgmental environment, and a very experimental environment. But Rochdale, it isn't a progressive utopia. Despite the
3: ease with which people came together to create a daycare, despite the ease with which people could explore their sexual identity, Others say Rochdale had its fair share of regressive attitudes. Scholars and journalists of the counterculture movement have documented that men in that era would get away with all kinds of sexual misconduct, passing it off under the banner of free love. Some former residents say this held true at Rochdale as well. I asked Nikki Morrison about it.
7: I never experienced myself, but then again, I'm a... People didn't mess with me because I was not the kind of a person to mess with, you might say. But there might be other people that might have been intimidated. I'm not saying it didn't happen. There was was a lot of people in that building, and I I didn't have eyes on everybody.
3: But Stewart says in his years
4: researching Rochdale, he's heard troubling things. So, like, they're talking about, you know, protecting... The community, and they're talking about be trying to be progressive around issues of sex and uh, gender, and then they'll also tell you a story, or you will read a story about you know fourteen-year-old girl runaways who have their be, basically become um, sexual playthings and bounced around the building for several months before uh, finally, like their mom shows up and takes them back home to Regina, you know, and you think, well, how did that? That doesn't square. And I'm sure there's somebody who could try to justify it as around, like, that's what free sex is. It's it's like, we didn't care about, you know, blah, blah. I don't, you know, I, that, that doesn't work for me. And those stories you do hear, not infrequently.
3: In his 2011 paper, Off the Streets and Into the Fortress, Stewart documents an organization called Rochdale Women, a group formed to, among other things, fight that misogyny. I tried to find its founders for an interview. But nearly five decades later, it can be tough tracking people down. Residents, they get together to create initiatives like Rochdale Women to address problems they face in the building. So they're essentially Rochedale's grassroots movements. But there is a top
4: level, Rochedale's governance bodies. On a political level, the building is very complicated. You have all kinds of different sort of factions. And some factions might be populated by like one person.
3: Stewart says at first, Rochdale's competing government bodies didn't seem all that interested in the mundane work of effective governance.
4: Politics is the art of the possible, and Rochdale was sort of this place where the impossible was what was exciting. Like, let's try something brand new, something nobody's ever tried before. They tried every different kind of government. They had a, you know, a dictatorship. They had a king for a while. They tried monarchy. Um, They tried a variety of different things, mostly, you know, with this kind of mocking, gestural... Perspective, but I mean, I think that the main issue that they're putting their finger on was that politics seemed rotten on the outside and they wanted to make it work on the inside, but that meant trying to do things that were different. So that breeds a lot of kind of countercultural thinking, or at least uh, counterintuitive perhaps thinking about politics. Ralph Osborne, the head of maintenance we
3: met earlier, he explains Rochdale's government was pretty quickly forced to get practical.
0: You know, uh, how do we pass a health inspection? How do we pay our rent? How do we we get the crashers out? How do we get people who who can actually
3: pay in? And one of those practical issues was drugs.
4: There is truth to this often repeated line that it was the biggest drug distribution warehouse in North America. I don't know about that, but it certainly was a major hub.
3: Of course, for people living at Rochdale, drugs per se aren't a problem. Cannabis and psychedelics, they're all part of the radical experiment. And small-time drug dealers are often part of the community. But when speed dealers connected to biker gangs make their way in and take over their own section of a floor, it's something else entirely.
4: It was called the drug commune, which is probably a misnomer, but there was just this sense that this one floor behind heavily reinforced closed doors, a group of drug dealers had a ton of product. That product could have ranged from so-called soft drugs all the way up to super hard drugs. So like drugs are coming in from the United States or from Europe or from Africa, wherever, and they're coming into the building through the underground garage, most likely, or through mules walking in and out because what's a cop gonna do? Stop everybody who's walking in and out of the building. And then once the drugs are in the building, they can be processed, they can be, whether they're processing down from pounds into ounces or grams or whatever, or they're processing from even larger amounts down. This was, you know, happening in a really serious way, uh, leading into 1970. And the issue at stake wasn't so much the drugs, because everybody in the building was using drugs. It was that these guys were scary. And they were scary because they had some, really had something to lose.
0: That was a huge internal problem, the, the speeders, the, the speed freaks. They had taken over a couple of ashrams, uh, ashrams being a accommodation in, in the East Wing, where, which had uh, several rooms around a common living and kitchen area. But at some point, it was, that's it. All the dealers have to, uh, all all the speed freaks and dealing in speed have to go. And... and uh, <laughs> So uh, fighting fire with fire, uh, we
4: had thugs on security that fought their thugs. This was a place that prided itself on a kind of countercultural energy and anti-establishment energy, and they didn't want to act like cops. But it became clear that in this instance, as it would in other instances, you got to act like cops.
3: So Ralph and the other Roshdalians they moved to kick out the speed dealers but the bikers supplying those dealers, well, they don't like that. So they attack the building.
0: The bikers made a raid on Rochdale one night uh, because they were very much interested in the in the speed trade. And uh, uh, the entire building uh, fought back. We had bikers on our security staff, of course, uh, three guys and uh, Zip and Tuck and Ed. And uh, but an entire building full of volunteers, so that when the bikers rode up to Roshdale to come and say, "That's enough of this, we're gonna take charge." They tried to charge the doors and we fought them back. and the entire south side of the building, all the windows opened up, and people were throwing things out the windows at the security. uh they used fire hoses as well as throwing things out the window and barring the door and a few fist fights and the, the fire hoses were what turned the trick. So they took they unlimbered the fire hoses from the various floors and turned them on the bikers. Out the window, out the door, like from the second floor, there was a patio on the back from the second floor patio and, and uh, just generally causing mayhem because uh, that's how you break up a riot
3: is with a fire hose. <laughs> We sent them packing. So the counterculture kids, the hippies, they win the day. People I spoke to said, for long periods after that, the folks in Rochdale managed to keep the problem drugs and problem dealers at bay. So it wasn't organized crime or conservative politicians who take Rochdale down. In the end, money troubles get Rochdale. Troubles related, at least in part, to its education program. Remember, Howard Edelman and Dennis Lee, their plan for a, at least somewhat, formal education program is tied to a plan for a massive tax break. Well, when the education plan falls apart, so does the tax break. There are other financial troubles too, like much lower than expected rental income, By 1975, Rochdale has $450,000 in outstanding mortgage payments. It was taken into receivership and eventually sold off. Ralph Osborne says, from his perspective, during the last months, maybe even the last year or more, Rochdale enters a period of decline. He's moved out by this point. But he says whenever he returns, it looks gloomier, the vibe a little more aggressive, and hard drugs more present. Nikki, who lives there nearly till it closes, disagrees with that description. She says as pressure builds to close Rochdale, residents move out in droves. The thinning population is increasingly made up of people who can't access housing elsewhere. So Nikki says it's a more marginalized crowd, not necessarily a rougher one. In the spring of 1975, when Rochdale closes for good, a small group of holdouts refuses to leave. Police head in to drag them out. News reports highlight the eviction. The Globe and Mail reports that Rochdale's final tenants leave it in such a sorry state that it needs a $1 million fix-up job to clear it of excrement, garbage, bugs, and damaged ceilings. Rochdale it's eventually turned into a senior's residence. Its entire lifespan, the people inside Rochdale faced judgment and contempt from the various segments of the world outside, particularly among conservative politicians and media, but also among the public at large. In a way, Rochdale's messy end helps confirm the worst opinions someone might hold about the place. Talking to former residents, it's clear there are as many interpretations of Rochdale as there were people who passed through its doors. Disagreements range from minutiae to major facts. It's not surprising, 50 years have gone by, and like society in general, people disagree about facts and meaning all the time. For A.A. Bronson, the meaning of Rochdale was not about achieving some end or some goal. It was about exploration.
5: You can't describe it as any one thing unless you describe it as that, you know, that where exploration in a way was the most interesting aspect, that all these communities were involved in some sort of cultural exploration, whether it was theater or whether it was, you know, uh, art or whether it was the act of living together, you know, exploring what that's all about. That's the interesting thing to me is that everything becomes exploratory and everything is open to exploration. Well, I return to the idea of day-to-day life. It's about the day-to-day life. Like in your day-to-day life, how can you push it and how can you use it to take you to another place, to grow in, a place to grow in?
1: You're listening to Darts and Letters, I'm Gordon Caddock, and that documentary you just heard was produced by Mark Apollonio. It's called The Hippie High Rise. If you like what you heard, consider subscribing to our podcast. Darts and Letters covers the politics of research, academia, and intellectual life. You can find episodes at dartsandletters.ca or wherever you find your podcasts. Okay, so was Rochdale College a worthwhile experiment? For the people in Mark's story, it clearly was. But for Howard Edelman, not so much. Remember, Howard's the guy who really started this. He's the guy who secured the mortgage and helped kickstart the educational program. He totally believed in Rochdale's mission. Until he didn't. Howard Edelman went on to become a philosophy professor at Toronto's York University, And along the way, he wrote some incredibly scathing critiques of Rochdale and really the whole New Left. Mark Apollonio tracked down Howard to ask him why.
3: In a piece you wrote in 1997, you said that Dennis Lee, the Rochdalians, and I espoused a vision of education which denied expertise, celebrated the amateur rather than the professional, and longed for the 19th century Oxbridge vision while living in a concrete rather than an ivory tower. There was no need for prerequisites, planning, or a syllabus. Do you recall what the vision for education you had was then?
2: Yeah, I think that writing in 97 represents a critique of our thinking back in that time. We talked about free education, equality between faculty and students. We talked about getting rid of standards, etc., that people would learn out of their own motivation. So it was a very free flowing in the nature of the thinking of the time of how you organize them, basically in a very anarchic way. And later on, I came to say that that wasn't pro- a progressive idea, it was a reactionary idea, that it was a harking back to the 19th century university rather than where the university was going and had to go. And it fitted in with my studies of the trajectory of the university which i had published
3: by the early 70s you were writing papers already that were very critical of roshdale do you recall what your opinions were of the ethos of roshdale the activities that were happening in roshdale
2: uh, first of all i wasn't
3: into drugs
2: at all and roshdale became a center of the drug culture and i wasn't even into pot i mean it was I wasn't against anybody smoking pot, but I was a Puritan, I guess. And I didn't drink or smoke or do things like that. And I still don't. So in one sense, it was a kind of pure, versus self-righteousness. I couldn't stand the chaos. I couldn't stand the irresponsibility about money, which I think was true. But it was also, I thought, I was critical because it, Institutions, I and I've become much more strongly an institutionalist since uh, are very important for protecting people, and Rochdale was not protecting people, and there were a lot of vulnerable people there, a lot, a disproportionate number, and the suicide rate was enormous. I mean, uh, and suicides have since become generally much more common. But then they weren't common. But in Rochdale, I mean, how many people jumped off the roof? I don't know how many, but they were in the news often enough. All that turned me off. I mean, I, I had a family and four kids and, and it just wasn't fitting in with my ethos. So that's why I was critical. And Later on, I became critical, not just of Rochdale as it operated, but of my own role in the thinking about it as being, that I wasn't self-aware, that I was naive, et cetera. You know, that I thought we were doing progressive things and I think now and did in the nineties and eighties, think we in fact were regressive rather than progressive.
3: You also wrote about Rochdale in that power and performance piece in 1997. Rochdale was not simply a symbolic acting out of those who lacked power in opposition to those who held its reins, but foreshadowed the corruption, drift, fraud, and fantasy world that became the reigning consensus in the '80s, when the baby boomers who inhabited Rochdale became the money and power manipulators of the power elite. So, h- how did you see the world within Rochdale going on to become the reigning consensus of the 1980s? Not in a direct way connection.
2: That's a pretty outrageous sentence. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. With little evidence, I suspect, of my saying it. But uh, uh, it's more the sense of the general thinking of fabulism that became much more predominant, so that it was a foreshadowing more than a causal uh, factor in what became a predominant, because fabulism... And still today, I mean, it's even worse today, I think, uh, has really infected the body politic in a way that I think is very bad.
3: Was it individualism? Would that be part of the root of the problem? Well,
2: that was one of the factors, but not the only one. I mean, the love of amateurism, the disparaging of institutions, the belief in anarchic organizations... I used to argue that when you'd have these consensus meetings of the whole group who showed up, it's whoever showed up, to decide how the dining room would be run, for example. So you'd have maybe 35 students show up. Because that was, I remember, that was one meeting I actually attended as an observer. And there were about 35, 40 students there, and they were deciding about uh, how the dining room ran. And that meeting went on for maybe 20 hours. And by the end, there were about eight people left. And they made the decision. I said, would say to people, it's the people with the fattest asses who can sit the longest, mm-hmm. and control it, who end up having the power. And I would remember the, the jokes we had in the co-op, that in the co-op meeting, you could have a a debate about whether we should buy three more houses this year, for example. And that would take maybe 20 minutes. But if we were debating whether students should be allocated three or four eggs a week, that would last two hours. Always, if not three hours. (laughs) And it, it became clear to me that lots of democratic debates are totally distorted because people grab on to what they know something about. They know something about an egg's cost and how much they want to consume in eggs, et cetera. And so you can have a long debate on it. Well, they didn't know much about buying houses, so that was quickly handled. And that permeates, began to permeate the culture where time was spent enormously on irrelevancies or minor
3: issues. I just want to ask a bit also about your view more broadly of the new left. You, you, you wrote another piece, the Canadian new left as, as an American Diamonian in 1971. And you kind of describe the left as having detached itself from the working person and becoming a movement of university students to your mind. If I understood correctly, the new left was a very bourgeois movement And because it wasn't actually prepared to attack its own status and own privilege, it remained ultimately very, very impotent.
2: Is that how you'd qualify it? You summed it up very well. It was essentially a critique of myself, uh, of what I think I was in the 60s. And I became very critical of that person's thinking in the 70s. And that goes along with my recovery of a belief in institutions and continuity and norms, which is what got left in time, out of time with the fabulism and individualism and lack of really understanding the historical context and the, the zeitgeist of the time and how you get caught up in it without knowing you are and you're acting out rather than really understanding things. And it stayed with me for my life because I think that's the hardest thing is to rise out of the time you're in and the dominant conceptions and just to stand aside from them and become to be aware of what they're about because it's too easy to get caught up and push them and become, even as I was, I think, a leader for those voices. That was a direct criticism of myself.
3: You then went on to uh, become a philosophy professor at York, and you were very involved uh, in working on behalf of refugees. You won the Governor General's Award for your work with refugees. In 1979, you created Operation Lifeline, which facilitated thousands and thousands of refugees coming to Canada from Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia. You founded the Center for Refugee Studies, one of the leading centers in probably in the world, certainly in North America, for studying forced migration. How did the new ethos you were developing out of your critique of yourself and, and your critique of Rochdale, how did your new attitude go on to influence all of this stuff you went on to do with refugees and migrants?
2: It's a very good question because we can think it out loud rather than giving prescri- you know pre-thought-out answer. Several things come together. One of the things I learned as an activist in the 60s was how to organize. I was a very good organizer. (laughs) That's what I got out of being a new leftist that was really positive. It's informal, trusting, all that kind of stuff. But I became more and more convinced, including with uh, with, uh, the refugee movement, that you needed an institutional embodiment of your efforts. It had to be a structure to it. It had to be people. So that for Wendy Shalou, who became the first executive director of Operation One, she was a hospital administrator. She's a brilliant administrator. And that's what you need. You need people with skills and abilities to do all that. I didn't have those abilities. I would have been the wrong guy to do that part of it. I mean, I was good at starting and organizing and inspiring a bit, but I wouldn't say I'd be any good at administering it, actually. And that happened at the co-op, too, because in the co-op, we ended up always having brilliant secretaries who really ran the co-op. And they were the one who kept it all together, not when I was the manager, I would give, honestly, they deserve more credit than I did. And they knew everybody, they, were, they had a, a real commitment to the people there and they knew all the procedures and the counting and all that stuff.
3: And you need that, without it, the place doesn't work. Do you see any benefit to the individualism Of the new left. And I say that because people involved in Rochdale and and with the new left will credit this kind of ethos with challenging conservative social norms, particularly when it comes to women's rights and and gay rights and that kind of thing. And uh, one particular uh, um, former Rochdale resident, A.A. Bronson, said that Rochdale and the environment that it contained was very important for him to be exactly who he was with regards to his sexuality and his personal identity, which was certainly not, you know, the norm in, in 19, uh, the 1960s and 70s. And so credits that with the ability to help society be more open-minded and, and, and accepting of people with different identities.
2: I think that's true. I mean, it did help that for a number of reasons, was much more open to the, these kinds of ideas. I gave a talk once in Washington, There was. Eric Fromm and I were giving talks. I don't know if you know Eric Fromm was part of the, uh, the wave of new left thinkers from Europe, uh, and was also a psychiatrist. Anyway, he gave a talk, and uh, he it was on really a forthcoming of his book on love. Uh, and afterwards, when I gave I came after him, and I said, "Well, you know, the difference between these two talks." is Eric gave the talk on feelies. I'm gonna give the talk on wheelies. And feelies and wheelies have to figure out how to work together to make the better world. And that's what this is about because the feelings have to be there, the sensitivity, all those things, qualities that came out then. Because it was a pretty, you know, in the 50s, the society was relatively very repressive about all groups. It wasn't just blacks or gays or of It was all kinds of minorities. But you're quite right that that feeling component really flowed out of Rochdale, and, but there was some cost because they didn't pay any attention to what you require to run something in the just uh, really the organizational part of it, the money part of it, all those kinds of
3: things. Have you seen that marriage happen properly? Yeah, I have.
2: For instance, the, the leading organizations with the sponsorship of refugees were the Christian Reformed Church and the Mennonites. And when you get to know them, they are wonderful at marrying organization and sensitivity. And they come from a very, very strong institutional background that really cares about their people, et cetera. But they're totally open to the new world. I mean, you'd think because they're very conservative or evangelical, even in their religious beliefs, they wouldn't be. But they are not. They're extremely progressive and extremely uh, giving to the world. And so I would take them as two examples as well.
3: So it seems that from some of the early writings that I've read to now, your your feelings about Rochedale have softened somewhat.
2: No, I don't think that's true. But maybe you're right. I mean,
3: I am not read what I said back then, so you may be right and I'm wrong. Your feelings seem quite harsh towards it in the in the writings.
2: Well, maybe you're right. You, know, you may be right and I'm wrong because uh, that I have mellowed about it. But I always think I appreciated the arts program. I think I always did. I think those three categories, the description where I said intellectually was a mess, uh, artistically was phenomenal, and so as a social, helping social movements was in the middle ground. I think I would still hold to that. It may be my words were stronger, but I I really don't think my analysis is very much different. But as I said, I didn't do the reading, you did. (laughs) So you might be more reliable as a judge than I am.
3: That was retired York University philosophy professor Howard Edelman, who may or may not have mellowed somewhat in his critique of Rochdale and the New Left. His writings on Rochdale include the articles... Rochdale College power and performance, and the Canadian New Left as an American daemonian. I wanted Stuart Henderson's view on the matter. What lesson does he take from this whole experiment that was Rochdale? Its residents in the New Left more broadly? Were they, as Howard argued, just disorganized bourgeois hedonists, unable or unwilling to really change things?
4: I mean, it's widespread as a critique of the 1960s social movements in North America in particular. I mean, in Europe, there's a little bit more of a sense of a concrete set of accomplishments like May 68, et cetera. But in North America, we've got a real problem where in the United States, the marshalling of the forces of the middle class left youth against the war and against Jim Crow. Are, I mean, it's very clear. You've got a very clear political issue that you're trying to rectify or, you know, a crisis that you're trying to end. And in both cases, the neither was ended in, in the sense of it been coming to a stop. But the Americans eventually pulled out of the war. There's no question that the anti-war movement had a, a role to play in, in that. And the Civil Rights Act is signed in 65, the Voting Rights Act in 66. How much did the new left have to do with that is debatable, but it would seem to me that there was a huge degree of amplification of black intellectuals and black um, civil rights activists by kids on college campuses, like the free speech movement in Berkeley and elsewhere. So I think in the United States, it's clear that there was a new left that achieved political goals. Now they didn't do it all by themselves, but they made it more likely that these goals would be achieved. In Canada, we had a much more complicated thing because the goals were much fuzzier. In many cases, the Canadian New Left was sort of acting in support of the American New Left. You know, it was an anti-racist New Left that was focused on anti-Black racism in the American South, you know, but not on anti-Black racism necessarily in Nova Scotia. It was late in some ways uh, to get, hip to the fact that in Canada, the uh, indigenous community, um, the crisis of, of inequality around surrounding indigenous folks in Canada was where the emphasis should have been put. Both the new left movements were had rampant problems with uh, sexism uh, in Canada and the United States. So there are like all kinds of reasons that sure, you know, Edelman and somebody who's making that kind of argument is right because they were fumbling around in a lot of ways, trying to figure out how to change a liberal order. What's the best way to answer this question? I think the best way is to say that if you want to look at Roschdale as a political exercise, have fun. It's a free-for-all for anyone to take pot shots at them. I mean, it's fish in a barrel. There's inconsistencies everywhere you look. There's all kinds of pseudo-Marxist nonsense that people will say, but there's also all kinds of really interesting actual living in communes that's going on. So to me, it's like these weren't theorists. These weren't necessarily folks that are out on the street trying to change the government or overthrow this and that. These are folks that were trying to find a new way of doing it themselves. Is it bourgeois? Probably. I mean, you know, but so is anything short of giving away all of your assets and, and uh, you know, whatever it is. Like, I mean, there's a certain line that I think is this drawn around middle class uh, activism that it makes it so no matter what the middle class person does, it's seen as a kind of bourgeois, a reflection of their bourgeois privilege, it's either their guilt for having grown up in comfort or it's their stopgap before they become a stockbroker. I think that if we continue to slap down young people when they're trying to live otherwise, think otherwise, behave otherwise, read Marx, explore alternative ways of, of doing and, and being political, then it's a self-defeating way of approaching social change. But hey, the easiest way to understand the 60s is as a failed experiment. We ended up with Donald Trump in the United States and neoliberalism in Canada. but. Is that the whole story? It seems to me like that's a total oversimplification.
1: And that's it for this episode of Darts and Letters. If you like what you heard, consider supporting us on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash darts and letters we are a production of cited media and we are made by jay coburn ren bangert mark Apollonio, and me gordon katik our theme song and outro was composed by mike barber and our graphic designer is dakota coop this episode received support from the social sciences and humanities research council of canada it's part of a broader series we're doing on the relationship between activism and academia. The scholarly leads are Professors Leslie Wood at York University and Professor Sigurd Smoltzer at the University of Massachusetts, Amherst. Thanks to their support and to others who've helped with research and advising on this project, including Sharmine Khan and Susanna Mulvale. Bye for now. Check back in in two weeks.